just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Speaking Up Influence podcast with virtual business speaker, presentation skills and influence coach, John Ball. Remember to like and subscribe. The Speaking of Influence podcast is uploaded and distributed using Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout makes it really easy to get your podcast started and out to a wide audience with lots of tips and useful tools to help you on your way. If you're interested, check the link in the show notes and start your podcast today. Well, welcome to the show. I'm really happy to be joined today by my special guest, who is a speaker, a writer. She is a trainer as well. She is also a a host of her own podcast, which is called Part of Me. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Her name is Essie Hardy. She has a company called Celebrating Disability. And today we are going to be talking about what she does in her work and how she uses the tools of uh, presentation and influence and persuasion and things in what she does so welcome to the show Essie Hardy great to have you thank you very much John it's great to be here thank you for inviting me I'm uh, really pleased to be speaking with you and when we had our initial conversation to discuss being uh, being a guest on the call um, I was really interested by what you do and why you do it what has been your your motivation so tell us a little bit about what your company is and what led you up to doing that So so Celebrating Disability is a business that supports businesses and not-for-profit organisations to be inclusive of disabled people. And that could be disabled candidates when they're applying for roles. It could be disabled employees when they work within organisations. Or it could also be disabled customers, guests and clients when they're interacting with the business. So I support them through awareness all the way through to inclusion for confidence and then to have the tools to competently implement strategies that will be inclusive of disabled people in that workplace culture. And and has that been something that has been uh, a challenge, like a lot many places not being all that inclusive? Yeah, I think I, I, it's getting better. So we're in 2020, we're, we're kind of, edging towards the end of 2020 I don't like to admit it because it's like we haven't had a year at all Um, and it's getting better a lot of especially the more high profile companies and and corporations are beginning to really grasp um, what inclusion means um, inclusion and equality of disabled people means Um, but we still have quite a far way to go with people kind of understanding the distinction between first of all diversity and inclusion, and then inclusion and accessibility. Yeah, these these are really important areas. I mean, 
as as a statistic, roughly what would be the percentage of people in the workforce or the potential workforce that, with disabilities? A good 50% um, of the workforce has a disability. So if you think one in five, Per, uh, one in five people have a disability um, a lot of disability so about around 80% of disabilities acquired during the lifespan of a person and a lot of it is acquired during the lifespan of a career so people are coming into the workplace perhaps without a disability so they're non-disabled when they enter the workplace and then they might acquire a disability so they might gain a disability gain sounds a bit of a glib word for disability but they might become disabled whilst they're at work and also if we think about the majority of disability is hidden yeah. um, so I have a physical disability I'm physically disabled myself um, and I'm a wheelchair user so when I'm out and about it's very obvious that I'm a wheelchair user because I am in a wheelchair um, I am not a very good driver so chances are I would have crashed into your door um, <laughs> or the person standing next to you but a lot of disability is hidden yeah. So people and organisations sometimes misinterpret their, their low numbers of disabled people that they're engaging with just because they can't see that disability. And a lot of disabled people don't like talking about their disability because they're worried about repercussions, as in discrimination in the, in the recruitment stage. They're worried about they won't get the support they need when they're in their business. They're worried about um, not being promoted. Sure. and not being supported in the right way if they disclose a disability. So essentially it's detrimental to them. And a lot of people don't recognise their disability as such um, and don't want to recognise their disability as such. There's still a lot of stigma around disability and a lot of bias that comes from disabled people themselves because we all live in society and we pick up on what everybody else says. So because of all those reasons, a lot of disabled people are not opening up to employers or yeah. asking for the support they need because they don't want to. So a lot of the data that would otherwise be gathered is not being gathered because people don't know how to ask in the right way and people don't know how to disclose in a way that they feel confident to. So, so you are part of the solution championing the cause to, to get equality, to get fair representation and parity in the workplace what have been some of the challenges that you've personally experienced in this area oh where do we start um so i would say it started right back in education so i mean i you know i am nearing 40 i know um but i'm nearing 40 so i grew up in the 80s and i went to primary school in the 80s and the early 90s um and there wasn't these inclusive education um, strategies then um, integrating disabled people with it was called in those days quote normal children was a relatively new thing and by normal it's not the word I would use non-disabled children is a relatively new thing um, therefore um, a lot of my education was secondary because I couldn't access the rooms or I couldn't access what they wanted me to do, um, the projects that, one, that we wanted to happen. Um, there was no education for the children as to how to um, you know, interact with me. Luckily, primary school children are a lot more open than older children and adults, so they just get on with it. Right. Um, and my mum told me that we, I grew up, well, I was born in Germany and grew up in Scotland. 
Um, and we moved um, in Scotland when my stepdad got a new job. And apparently the school had told the children in the class on the Friday that on the Monday there was going to be a very special child coming, a very special little girl, and they would have to be very nice to her. And apparently at the end of Monday, one of the children said to the teacher, I don't know what's so special about her. She's just like us. So children are a lot more accepting and a lot more, they just get on with it than adults. But as I got older, those, those differences widened, those barriers widened, um, and those opportunities got bigger and bigger. Um, I went to a school for physically disabled children um, and the onus wasn't on education. It was on making us, in quotes, better so that we could go and live, in quotes, an independent, normal life. Um, and so a lot of physio, um, a lot of, quotes, independence training. Mm. Um, and then when I, so by the time I got to college, um, although I had GCSEs, they weren't at the standard that they needed to be for me to do the courses I needed to do. So in the education, I was already on the back foot by the time I went to university. Yeah. Um, and then in the workplace, workplaces, again, at the time, were very much used to looking at what you've done and what your experiences is. I was an actress. And so my experience was limited, not because I wasn't good at what I did um, and not because I didn't get the opportunities in college, but because um, they couldn't see my potential. You know, I was just the disabled girl. What could I possibly do? So I got turned down for lots of auditions. Obviously, I got some drops, but a lot more of the auditions I were turned down for because of how I physically presented and the biases that those um, casting directors held about me. Um, and then in the work in the workplace, as in in the office environment, um, because I perhaps didn't have the qualifications that the other candidates had, but also because of just that bias around disability in the first place, I found it very hard to secure a role. Um, so I become it became self-employed um, at 25 purely because it was harder to find an employment role. Um, I got my first employment role I think when I was 33. Right. I only stayed for two and a half years because by that time I liked being my own boss yeah. and then left again um, and set up my own business. But the story that I've just told is not unusual for a disabled person's experience because of the prejudices and the lack of understanding about the support that a disabled person might need. I can well, can well appreciate it. And from everything you say, you know, I can certainly as someone who is not disabled, uh, I, I can certainly see that those things have been there and maybe haven't been in general awareness for mo for many people because of not having disabilities themselves or not necessarily having someone in their family with a disability. And um, uh, but I I have in my own family experienced that like, uh, a family member who has uh, learning difficulties, and they were diagnosed quite young. And again, like invisible disability, but um, but what what I saw in the education system there, even even more recently, she's still quite young, um, is that the the options that she was presented for her life were very limited. They were based on still very fixed ideas about what you do when you finish school, and and really none of it was actually looking at. Um, where she might have talent or ability naturally yeah. it was all very focused on well this is the, probably the best you can hope for mm -hmm. and it was already about that like, okay that's not good and as much because that got so instilled and I think even to some degree and this is uh, a family member her parents were kind of went believed it as well 
it, it, I can see the limitations that uh, not just society was placing on her, but she ends up placing on herself as well, really like, you know, yeah. accepting this is the best I could go for. You didn't accept that, and you're encouraging other people not to accept that, saying you can, it can be more, you can be more, you can have more. And, uh, and I'm definitely glad to hear that uh, experiences are changing, but even just seeing, uh, not that I watch much UK TV, but from what I do see, uh, whilst it may see some more inclusivity is still not that much for people with disabilities that, that I'm aware of. I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And I think you're absolutely right with, with a lot of what you just said. Um, and I think the, that empowerment piece that you were talking about before with the person in your family that has a learning disability is so important. So, so disabled children and the families of disabled children are told all the time that, you know, they can't, you know, this is the best you can hope for. They're probably going to die. So it's a miracle that they're still alive and all of those things. So when, when a disabled baby is handed to a parent, um, the first thing the doctor often says is, oh, I'm sorry, your baby's disabled. Not congratulations, you have a new baby. And so from the moment dot, parents are being, the, the message to parents is being reinforced that there's something wrong that it's going to be hard that it's going to be a struggle that it's all negative and it's really hard especially when it's a negative based practice to turn, as in what can't you do to turn that into you know what can you do what do you enjoy doing what can we you know what do you want to achieve how can we support you to achieve what you want to yes you can rather than no you can't um, and it's easy for that disabled person to slip into well I can't I mean, I have lots of friends and colleagues um, that are still in that attitude. And I had that attitude for a very long time. And I had a mum that was very positive, just because you're disabled, that he doesn't mean that you can't do it. Yes, she did send me to a special school, but she sent me to that special school because she was told that that was the best place for me. She wasn't told about what wouldn't happen to my education. She was told, she was essentially told that I could probably skip, hop, skip and jump after five years. Um, because they want, you know, they think the best outcome is to be, in quotes, normal. But, you know, what's normal? Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's when that disabled person becomes uh, confident with their disability that that empowerment really happens. But there's a lot that people can do in the meantime to empower people. Um, yeah. And because I went back of what you said, I forgot what your leading question was. <laughs> Don't worry, I don't even remember myself. <laughs> but uh, but I, I love what I love what you're saying there. And interestingly enough, I mean, I, I think those are that's a subject that's really relevant to everyone, whether they realise it or not. Like yeah. general systems that we grow up in often limit us in ways that we just tend to accept because we're told to, and that's what we've been told. That's what people say is the best for you all along, and maybe just we see it more clearly in in these sorts of specific situations. But I think it's generally true um, because I, I think most of us grow up with these limitations, and we end up placing them on ourselves and believing them to be true yeah. when they don't when they don't have to be. What I do want to come to with you though is that you did take things further, and and you dreamed of more you decided that's not enough for me I want something more and so not just from the acting stuff that you did but you decided to go into talking about this and uh, presenting and speaking what was what was your path to actually getting onto a platform and speaking 
you know what I think I think I know you said we've already discussed acting but I think it was acting so you know, acting gave me confidence where where when I was young so I started in drama class at school when I was 14 and I suddenly thought oh wow everyone's looking at me this is amazing you know I've got everyone's attention they're standing up and they're clapping and they're laughing when I say something funny this is incredible um, and that, and for a lot of actors, a lot of actors um, are very shy people, but they come into their own when they're on stage, because when you're on stage, you can be someone else. So I think that was the beginning for me. And I enjoyed the fact that I had everybody's attention and then I could give them a message, whether it be a fictional message or then a bit more kind of a um, motivational message or whatever the message was. Um, and then so... Um, I think every kind of role that I've had since acting has kind of been in a talking platform, an empowerment platform in one way or another. So I used to go into schools um, and run disability awareness talks and disability awareness training sessions for primary school children on disability awareness. Um, and then I worked for my local authority where I trained social workers um, to support disabled people. Um, and then the organisation I worked for before I set up Celebrating Disability used to send me out um, and do the talking opportunities because, again, I loved being in front of people and I would give my opinion anyway. So I think they thought, oh, God, she's going to say something anyway. Let's just let her talk in the first place. Um, and, then, you know, I just think it's a really powerful way of delivering a message to a group of people. If you can make, when you talk, if you can make it tangible and relatable to your audience, so there's, there's a saying, isn't there, that, um, you know, as a speaker, you have to know your audience. And it's so true. You have to um, tailor your talk and pitch your talk to the audience that you're going to be delivering it to. I've heard so many speakers quite recently, actually, um, in networking events and all sorts that just start without understanding their audience so not asking the question hands up how many people um, have a marketing strategy for example or hands up how many people have a product compared to how many people deliver a service and by gaining and maybe asking a few more general questions and by gaining that knowledge you can then pitch your talk to the position um, the audience they're at and I think that's so important to kind of foster engagement but also to show the audience that you you care about how they're receiving so you care about their experience yeah absolutely um one of the things that comes up over time and again in many of the conversations i have with speakers and actually quite recently with a lot of uh, professional comedians as well uh, who I've been speaking to and is, is about the connection part the connection with the audience so with your topics what what would be the the ways that you like to start that connection with your audience that's a good question so I'm just trying to think so I mean generally I know the audience I know that the type of audience before I go in um, but I will start, I mean, a lot of people have a story, their story that they tell. I don't have a story um, specifically, um, but I will start by telling them who I am and why in a way that I feel justified to be here talking to them. So I might 
usually, you know, if it's face-to-face, they'll see that I'm sitting in a wheelchair. So my justification talking about disability inclusion is that I'm a wheelchair user, but obviously lived experience is only one part of it. So I also tell them about my professional background um, and what I've been doing, or if it's appropriate, what other businesses and companies I've worked for, so that they can relate um, what I'm about to tell them with, oh, she must know what she's talking about because she's talked to X, Y, and Z that also in our sector. Um, and then when I'm discussing a subject, I will try and relate it back to something in their life. Um, so, for example, if I'm talking about um, how to make a venue inclusive and accessible for disabled people, I'll ask them to think about what it feels like when they go into a building and people don't walk up and greet them or they go into a building and they didn't necessarily know where to go, or or other th- or they go into a building and they need the loo and they can't find the facilities, or the facilities are locked. And it helps them to kind of think, oh yeah, no, that's annoying, because I think some people think, well, I'm not disabled, I can't possibly relate to what it's like for a disabled person. But actually, you can experience being excluded. Therefore, for my talk, that's relatable to you. So, and if I'm talking about business strategy, for example, I might then relate that strategy back to my own barriers of the strategies and the processes not working for me and why it's so important to change it and then what the benefits are. Yeah, um, which which is important. When we make it relatable, you make it a unit part of the universal experience, things we can all connect with. Uh, and that's important. So that's engaging, that's the connection part. That makes a lot of sense as a yeah. start. But I also think it's important. I mean, I um, use humor a lot in my talks. And I also, I mean, not trying to blow my own trumpet, but humor is not easy. Comedy is one of the hardest skills. In acting, um, but I'm quite lucky that I've got quite comic timing, and I'm quite good at the one-liners. Um, and humour helps to engage with people. So people that are a bit standoffish and think, "Oh, this is nothing to do with me," um, I can make them laugh, and then they can still think this is nothing to do with me. But that was funny. And then later on, they'll be thinking that was funny. Oh, I get it now. So by putting in that that bit of humour every now and then, it sticks with people and then slowly they can process the information and it becomes relatable to them. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. I I talk a lot about the tools of influence and persuasion and my podcast is called Speaking of Influence. Mm. And um, one of the best tools of influence and persuasion is humour. You know, as uh, as I said, I've been having a lot of conversations with professional comedians recently. And uh, and stuff that has been coming out of those conversations has been around uh, how humour... Uh, helps us deal with things that might otherwise be a bit difficult to deal with, uh, how mm-hmm. it relaxes people, creates greater connection, puts us more in uh, alignment. We feel like we're all part of something when we're, we're laughing and joining together. So, yeah, really uh, important areas and uh, no harm in blowing your own trumpet about that. Be, be proud of <laughs> making people laughing. That's a, a great thing. It's, it's not always easy to do, which is why a lot of people don't even try for humour. Yeah. But it's actually not that hard to be at least a little humorous just to be light and playful in your presentations uh, and it certainly helps if we don't take ourselves too seriously right absolutely yeah I agree and I think also it's so important to um recognize 
recognize and talk about the fact when it's not going perfectly. So, so we're only human, nothing ever goes perfectly. If your presentation isn't on the right page or whatever, you know, talk about it. Don't don't ignore it because everybody can see it. So why not kind of focus, you know, you make sure that, that you understand that this is happening. So I um, use PowerPoint essentially to remind myself what I'm going to say next. Um, so I have slides with minimal information on it, but they're really a jumping off point for me to start talking. So if I gave you my slides, you would be like, I don't know what you're talking about, Essie. Um, but with me talking, they would just be a reminder. Um, and I have to look at my slides because I have a terrible memory. And I always say, I promise I wrote this myself. Um, because, you know, to other people, it would look like, oh, I'm just reading somebody else's work because I can't remember what's coming up. So, yeah, yeah acknowledging that things aren't perfect is really important. That, that's really good because, um, interestingly enough, you, you may have come across this before, but um, there's something called, uh, uh, in the presenting world, a visual stack. And, okay. and it's, a, it's a memory technique for learning your presentation where you create images that represent different parts of your presentation and you can then go and link them like make a some wild crazy story that links these parts of your visual stack and and even make it as uh, images that represent that and in the slide using your slideshow to do that makes a lot of sense because it's, it's the cues that you need that that fit with what you're talking about and make sense as a visual representation but as you say don't give everything away but they keep you on track for what you're talking about and they're those cues so rather than just having those pictures in your head you make them part of your slideshow very clever i like it yeah and i just think it's better i mean obviously horses for courses but i i personally think it's better than having prompt cards because you have to look down at your prompt cards, which is taking you away from the engagement of your audience. Because obviously one of the most important things is, is um, eye contact. So it's taking you away from having that eye contact. So it's when you're looking on those slides for those prompts, um, it's almost like you're all in it together. Have you, have you found that since uh, COVID and quarantines and things that you know, pretty much has been uh, online presentations and what kind of differences has it made for you? So, yes, it's, it's all been online. So um, the first one I did, um, that rather than a training session, a talk that I did online, was I think it was quite early on, I think it was April, um, and I am used to delivering half a day to a whole day courses for about 16 to 20 delegates on my own in a room. Um, I was so much more exhausted after one hour of delivering an online presentation than I would have been delivering a day's training session because there was no engagement and there was no interaction. So I was staring at the screen with my PowerPoint presentation um, where I couldn't hear anyone, everyone was muted and I couldn't see anyone. And that's really hard because I get my energy for delivering from my audience. So I see my audience and I see how they're reacting to my material and then I adapt accordingly. Either I tone it down or I ham it up or I do whatever I need to do to, to deliver that message and to engage um, and to make sure it's tangible. So if I can see that people don't quite get it, I can give them another example. If I can see they have got it, then I can move on. I can also ask them questions. And in this particular presentation, I couldn't do any of that. And it was absolutely exhausting. 
Um, and you would think a non-speaker would think, oh, that's really easy because you just talk and you, you don't, you're not going to be stopped by questions that you have to think about. But it's really, really hard for somebody that's used to engaging and interacting with an audience. So yeah, it, it's it's been challenging, but you know, like everybody, we've been learning. Um, so one of the things I find really helpful, and I think this is a good um, point of practice anyway, is to um, to, to kind of tell your audience what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. So I send, when I'm running training sessions, I send a pre-training how-to guide out to them. So if they, I mean, most of us are quite good at Zoom these days, but there are some people that are still not working on computers. Shock horror. Um, so, you know, it's really helpful to send that how-to guide. This is how you join the meeting. This is what's going to happen when you're there. This is how we're going to engage. This is how you can engage with me, giving them as many options that are possible for them to engage in the way that they feel confident. And then also at the beginning, I have housekeeping. And the housekeeping is, okay, so please mute yourself when you're not talking. Um, please be aware that I also have access requirements, so I'm not going to get to the chat box as quickly as somebody without limited dexterity would. Um, and all of those things to relay um, worries and anxiety of my audience members. Right. Now, so, as someone like yourself, who's like a, a natural performer, then I appreciate that you really like having that feedback and that energy. But for some, someone like me, maybe not quite such a natural performer, but who has been working mostly online for at least the last 10 years, um, that wasn't a, trans, a transition I needed to make. I was already yeah. doing it. But I do remember um, that when I first started doing uh, webinars and uh, large group coaching sessions and the likes, that there was a, there was a lot to learn in terms of differences, like big differences to live presentations, and uh, certainly the when I first started doing webinars, the functionality that we have now was not there. Like mm. audience interaction really was super limited. And um, you know, there was only a few things that people could really do. And like some of the events, none at all. And um, uh, the, those systems are still, I guess they're still around to some degree. But uh, when you feel like, almost like you're talking to um Thin air. And I just was have to remind myself how many people are on the call because you could always see how many people were there. And like these, I have to assume these people are listening. I think one of the services, I think it was GoToWebinar, used to tell you when people weren't being attentive, and they're no really? longer they're no longer allowed to do that uh, because of uh, privacy. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> which is which is kind of suddenly that was really useful because I. People clearly come onto these sorts of, you know, maybe you know, probably people listening to us, like whilst they're listening or watching, they're checking their phones and whatever else. You know, not fully. Exactly. Fair enough. But when you're on a when you're on a webinar, like you really want people to be paying attention, so you don't really want people shifting off to Facebook or uh, emails or whatever else it is. You want people to be attentive on the webinar. Uh, and so it was nice to have that as a tool to be able to bring people back and say, you know, let's get everybody attentive on uh, listed as attentive. Now that's not there. But uh, again, that was the only way to measure it. Then now there's a lot more things that we've had to learn in terms of interaction. Zoom offers a lot more interactive interactivity. Um, but uh, how how good is generally the sort of online world for accessibility for people with disabilities? So. 
it's getting better and and you know I've had um throughout the months of lockdown and then into kind of social distancing and still remote working but for many disabled people not all but for many disabled people they felt as though they can be more engaged um and be more included and involved in the conversation um I mean if you if you take a disability out of it for a second um I attended a meeting in in Liverpool the other day I wouldn't have done that if it was live or if it was face to face because it's too far away to go for a two-hour meeting but online it took me two seconds to type in a url code and go straight there and i think if if you relate that to disabled people so when as a as a physically disabled person when i go to an event live i have to think about the access how am i going to get there what's going to happen when i get there is the loo going to be accessible for me? How am I going to get from the front door to the venue? What happens at the buffet lunch? Who is going to put some food on my plate? Because I'm always thinking about lunch. Um, how, how am I going to get out? Is there going to be taxis? What time is my train? Are there going to be train platform staff to help me on the train? Or I need to organise my support when I get back. Is the support going to be there when I need it? All of these, what am I going to wear? Because I can't wear a coat. So what am I going to wear that's going to be warm enough but still makes me look presentable and I'm not going to be too warm in the building? All of these things don't matter when it's online because I could essentially be in my pyjamas and wear a nice looking top and rock up and still be my engaging um, expert self or annoying to talking too much self, whichever way you look at it. Um, but, you know, and for lots of disabled people, that is the case. So all the barriers that presented, prevented them getting to the online, to the meeting beforehand are taken away. Um, and I think a lot of the platforms are thinking about accessibility. So, for example, um, Zoom have a closed caption option that somebody can type in the closed captions. Um, whilst people are talking. So if there is a deaf or hard of hearing person in the audience, they can still access the meeting. And that was something that I tapped into in the summer when I was doing a bunch of webinars. Um, a participant contacted me and she said, because um, I invited people to tell me if they had access requirements they needed to be me, to, for me to be aware of. And this one participant contacted me and said, can I provide closed captions? And then I was able to source a company that was able to type for me and use the closed caption service on Zoom to do the typing. And I happen to know that in beta, they Zoom have an option where automated closed captions can come up. Um, so as we're talking, the closed captions would come up on the bottom of the screen. Right. Um, but there's loads of things that um, hosts and platforms can tap into to make it more accessible. But there's also a lot of things that people can do, hosts can do without having to buy into a service or to download anything that they can just do as part of their presenting style. So like before, when I was talking about how to engage in a meeting, that helps people who perhaps have mental health issues that are struggling with confidence or struggle with anxiety to know ahead of time what's going to happen. And I'll say, well, the break is this. This is when the break is. And I'll put in more breaks. So somebody perhaps who has ADHD or something who can't sit down for all or can't concentrate for too long, um, they know when the regular breaks are coming up. 
um, I also give people lots of options to engage. Um, so I've seen, because I've attended lots of meetings myself, on the confirmation email that says, please engage this way. And I think, well, I can't, so I'm just going to do it my way anyway. But that's because I'm confident. Um, but lots of people would think, well, I can't, so I won't go. Um, so what I do is I say, these are all the options you have to engage. Please bear in mind my access requirements. So if your option is to type in the chat box, I will get to you, but it will take me a bit longer. If you feel confident to, please raise your hand or just start talking. Because also there are people that can't press the buttons or can't physically raise their hand because of their disability. Yeah. So I'll say, if possible, could you mute yourself or raise your hand? But if it's not possible, please just talk. Um, so, so making it as inclusive for everybody as possible and what I find and not making it mandatory that people turn their videos on. I, I think that's so important. Oh, you must turn your video on. Well, why? I mean, it helps the host, but it's not about us as hosts. It's about our audience. It's about making our audience feel comfortable. And what I find is when I say, I'd love you to turn your camera on, but I completely understand if you'd rather not. Throughout the event, people, because I've set that out and I've said you can do what you would like, I'm not going to dictate to you how to engage, people begin to feel more confident and they do turn their cameras on eventually. It's meeting people where they're at, for sure. You know, one of the things I, I run regular group coaching calls and um, Zoom has this wonderful breakout rooms feature. And mm. um, so we like to put people in there. And, and I do say to people on the calls, you, if you have a camera and you want to put it on, you're very welcome to, but you don't need to. In the breakout rooms, it might be nice because you're going to be with a small group of people. So if you can, you might feel more comfortable to do it there and get to know people who are on the program with you. Um, but um, that's been a really nice function. But because people can communicate and feel more comfortable communicating in those smaller groups, and when they come back into the main room area, as it were, they communicate more in the main room as well. So it's been yeah. a real, uh, for me as a, as a host, it's been a real benefit to have that and also noticing that people are feeling more included, more a part of it, who might not otherwise have shared or interacted very much on those kinds of uh, calls and programs. So, so I really like that. Do you, other than for yourself, because you know what to do, do you come across some examples of businesses now or maybe businesses who you work with who are doing it well and uh, and are helping get the inclusivity right um yes so um off the top of my head i don't know the names but yes there are i mean i've been to quite a few diversity and inclusion conferences and sessions throughout lockdown where they have put those things in place so, so the closed captions are part of the service already that it's always very helpful when the organization is bigger than a couple of people to have the host and then somebody in the background doing all the technical things so sorting out the breakout rooms making yeah. sure that the questions are being allocated and things like that yeah. um, and that helps as well um Again, I know I'm not just talking about myself, but one of the things that I struggle with is when the questions need to be put in a chat box, I can't type very fast. Right. So five minutes to the end, does anyone have any questions? I'm busy typing out my questions, we're finished. Um, so what I have noticed is, is a lot more companies are saying, type your questions throughout um, and then we'll make 
sure that we answer them so that people have time. Um, and then also put your hand up if you'd like to answer the question. But I, I went to one the other day, and I think it was by um, Sky, which is uh, Social Care Institute for Excellence. So you would hope that they would know what they're doing with engagement and accessibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually said... Um, anonymously please let us know if you prefer to put things in the chat box or if you prefer to speak due to your access requirements because then we can tailor how we interact with you to what you need so actually they're not just saying blanket do what you like but saying actually individually please tell us what we can do to make this easier for you Um, which really helped and it it helps with engagement as well because it helps the audience to understand that the, the host cares about that experience and it's just a little thing that also makes life easier for the host but you're going to go back there i'm talking about it now because it was such a good experience right it's something that sticks in people's minds it's a good presenter that's thought about their audience needs and how they're going to experience the session for for you then when when you turn up to an event online or in person where people have really thought about these things how does that feel it feels great. It, 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 I think that for me, inclusion, the difference between accessibility and inclusion, incl- accessibility is helping somebody to access. Inclusion is making sure that once they have accessed, that they feel part of the community. Um, so for me, inclusion, apart from what I just said, inclusion is feeling as though I can do things the way I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it. Um, so that for me is really important so that kind of how would you like us to interact with you this is what's going to happen which would be easier for you means that I can still have a conversation with four other Joe and um, and Jean blogs in the room but in the way that works for me so I'm not on the back foot I don't feel that okay I'll join you in a second when I've been able to press these five buttons I need to press Um, I can do it now and there doesn't have to be an obvious difference it's um it's a it's a big thing that I, I think I'm glad to know it's getting better and I'm glad to know that that, that when inclusivity is happening when people are actually being cared about that uh, that we all we're all going to benefit from it because there are potentially a lot of insights and uh, uh, contributions that are otherwise getting missed out on because because we're not having uh, equal access for everybody we're just kind of setting uh, there's sometimes setting things as just one thing this is the one way you can interact and mm. uh, and so we don't know in those situations what we may be missing out on but some people are very aware of what we're missing out on and uh you say maybe struggling or feeling that they're not just not being heard or paid attention to and one of their uh, no for me personally but one of the biggest things generally in life that um people kind of hate or maybe even feel worried about is is feeling ignored feeling left out of things and uh you know i know for myself i've never liked that experience and uh, you know we know not even necessarily exclusion but just being ignored, not having any attention paid to you, that when we do that, we actually are empowering people by by including them, by um, acknowledging people and their needs and, and bringing more in, that we're, we're setting up a better system of equity for people and, uh, and more opportunity as well, because that's really what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. You're, you're a great example of like not being held back by um, limitations that you could easily have just accepted in the past and saying, no, I can't do that. 
uh, you you know you've gone you've gone well beyond that. You've even started your own podcast. So tell us a bit about that. So um, part of me podcast is a peer to peer podcast where I interview other disabled people on their experiences of the workplace. And the workplace for them could be anything. Um, so I have had a um, an Olympian or a Paralympian tennis player. I've had an Olympian journalist. Um, I have had, trying to think of some more, I've had a business owner. Um, I've had a rugby, like a para, Paralympian rugby player. Um, so also across the spectrum of um, workplaces I've had. And I've had people that work in offices, um, data entry jobs, all the way to strategic positions. So a range of um, of people that work in the workplace. So they talk about their own experiences. Um, they, talk, they give advice to managers who might be managing disabled people in the workplace. Um, and they give advice to other disabled people as to how to feel confident and empowered in the workplace to do what they want to do and how they want to do it. And they talk a little bit about um, customer service and customer experience. So how they experience barriers um, or opportunities as disabled customers and the advice that they give um, to business owners in that setting. Yeah, well, great. And so how long has your podcast been, been running for? So it started, I think, in November 2008, um, and the first season ended December 2019. So it's on a break, um, because the next season I'm going to be interviewing people within business, um, within the strategic DNI diversity and inclusion positions about why DNI diversity and inclusion for disabled people is important. Um, and what they're doing to make strategic change um, to be more inclusive of disabled people. Um, and so far I've interviewed um, the diversity inclusion lead for Surrey Police okay. um, and also somebody else that works for an organisation called Global Giving um, that's a charity that supports disabled people um, across the world, mainly in African countries. Great. Uh, my my general experience as a podcaster is that uh, other podcasters, is, it's not really something people go into because they think it's going to make them successful or uh, famous <laughs> or anything like that. Uh, we do it because we love it and because we care about what we talk about. What what are your what are your favorite things about doing a podcast yourself? Um, talking. Um, hearing other people's experiences as well um, is really good. I think it's great that, I mean, as I said, in view, as your audience, listeners and viewers would have heard on this podcast, I do like talking about myself um, and I do use my own lived experience. But also it's so important to hear experiences of others um, because, I, I mean, I always say I'm only one disabled person um, and people say to me, oh, we want you to come in and tell you, tell us about your experience. And I think, well, that's not helpful because I can tell you all about what you can implement to make it fine for me. But then the next person will come along and you'll have to start all over again. So why don't I give you a general overview of the barriers that disabled people face? So I think it's so helpful to hear from different points of view because it reinforces that everybody is different and everybody is unique. Um, there's no um, access, there's, there's no support plan that's going to support everybody. Um, and also, you know, I like 
I like I like promoting it. I like people engaging and then contacting me. I get quite a few um, emails to say I really enjoyed this podcast. Can I find out a bit more about this? And then I signpost onto that person if appropriate. Um, and also, you know, for me, yeah, it's not a big money maker, but it has drawn in some business for me as well. So people that listen to the podcast, they then might get in touch and say, oh, I really like this. Would you be able to help us with this that you were talking about on this episode? Um, and it's also really good for making connections. So you and I linked up because we both saw that we were podcast hosts and I've made loads of connections and contacts um, that have either become um, associates and friends or just friends in general um, through being in the podcasting world. Yeah, and I, I know for me personally, my my network has expanded massively since doing the podcast. And some of that is just by actively reaching out to other podcasters or people who want to be podcast guests and being active in certain communities. There are many groups and places where you can connect with people who are interested in, in podcasting as, as podcasters or uh, as hoping to be guests. And uh, so, yeah, it's been very powerful. And I personally find it to be a very friendly giving community like i said people do it generally do podcasting because they love it you know some people do yeah. make money and do really well with their podcast financially but i think the vast majority of people aren't in it for that and i think i've heard uh, tim ferris uh, and maybe a few others say before now you know if you're going to start a podcast don't do it because you think it's going to make you rich or famous do it because you enjoy it or you love it otherwise you won't stick with it because it, it, it's a bit of a long road uh, but uh, but it can be a lot of fun it can be really powerful and it gives a voice and i, and I want to come back to some of what you're saying because i think the um the, the stories are so important like hearing people's stories gives us that opportunity for empathy to be able to put ourselves in that position and say, or at least I understand that, or I get, I hadn't considered that before, because you get to, you get a sense of an experience of the world that is outside of your own. Uh, and mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes one of the reasons why people are, aren't always appreciative or aren't always actively seeking to to improve on their inclusivity is just not having that awareness and, uh, and not having that understanding which makes hearing people's stories really powerful so giving uh, your platform as a uh, your podcast as a platform for that is uh, is a powerful thing uh, because it's our stories that really break down barriers and help people to to get a sense of what's really going on and, and have that awareness you know, more so when we when we connect to meet and when you actually know people in those situations it makes it even more powerful but you know certainly a great way to do that on a bigger scale is by um exchanging our stories and our experiences which is which is fantastic i think so yeah great and so one of the things that uh when, when I asked you to talk about a list of things that uh, would be good to talk about, you said it was influence and influence and empowerment. I think we talked a fair bit about empowerment, uh, but let's, let's talk a little bit about the influence side of things, if that's okay, and what, where that's important for you and where that comes into what you do. So we think there's two sides of that. Again, but as you say, we've already talked about the empowerment side, but I think the influence and empowerment, you know, they work hand in hand when it comes to supporting, in my case, disabled people. Um, but in other cases, other people that might need a bit of help to have confidence in themselves in any way by seeing somebody else doing it and by saying, well, should we try it this way? Who said you can't? 
I don't believe that. Let's try it. It supports them. Um, and so I do think influence and empowerment work hand in hand together. And also it works in business as well. So I think that businesses are be- getting better. So there, there are a lot. For example, there's, there's um, in, um, top 50 inclusive companies. So, so, a, so a website called Inclusive Companies every year um, promotes the top 50 inclusive companies that they've in the UK that they've audited to say they have inclusive practices and they are an inclusive company. And then they, um, they publish that on their website. Um, and then the, the companies can publish it and then it, their material and everything. Um, and if people are not doing it for anything more than the business case, as in, oh, you know, it looks good, it's a good PR platform to be inclusive of disabled people, um, then they can see that other companies have done that. So the list of names includes people like Bloom, um, Bloomberg and BT and Autotrader. So you look on it and think, oh, you know, I don't need to worry about this diversity and inclusion bollocks and then you see auto trader and you think oh my god auto traders doing it i'll do it too and then i think once you start doing it then you realize that it's not as complicated as you think it was and also it brings you lots of benefits both from the business case and also just from the professional and personal point of view that we've discussed in this podcast but i think influence is so important and influence as a speaker is so important so again it it goes back to making it relatable so being able to relate to your audience and saying i know you know what you might be thinking i've been there too so again if i can talk about myself for a minute so when i deliver training um i want people to be confident and they want to be confident with the language they use when describing disability because people are terrified of saying the wrong thing and so i say so what are the words that you think are appropriate and inappropriate to use silence and they will look at each other, you know, if, if we're in a room and go, oh, I can't say anything, I can't say anything. And I say, for example, when I was 19, my friend and I used to call each other spackies. And they go, oh, well, if Essie said that, then I'm going to say all these things. Um, and then the conversation goes on for about 40 minutes, which is what I planned to do. But I think that, that as a host, we can influence or a speaker we can influence by helping people to understand that we relate to where they're coming from so i know this is difficult i know that this is challenging i know that you have lots of other priorities this i know this because i went through it too Mm. but these are the steps that i took and these are the benefits and look at these other high profile businesses or high profile people that went through exactly the same journey and look at where they've come from um, I was talking to quite a high-profile client the other day, and one of the things that won them over was telling them that they could be an influencer. You know, if you do this the right way and we do these things, then you can influence. And I saw his eyes literally light up. And it's not a bad thing um, to be honest with yourself and say, I want to be an influencer because it helps drive that business's profile or it helps drive your personal profile. Um, but I think influence is so important for change um, by saying, this is, you know, here I am, you respect me, um, or whoever says, you respect me, you look up to me. I went through exactly the same and the same thought processes as you did. And this is what I've got. You can do it too if you just take these steps. Yeah. And we'll do it together. 
Yeah. Great. So, for example, with Disability Confident, um, which is a, a government scheme to support businesses to put in accessibility and inclusive processes into their recruitment and into their business as usual strategies. Um, one of the things that they do is when you become disability confident, you join, um, you can join Facebook groups, you can join LinkedIn groups, um, and then there's three tiers. So on the second and third tier, you're actually being assessed and audited by other businesses that have reached that level. So you're not working with an external person that doesn't really know anything about it. You're working with people that have already been through it. And they can say, I've had this struggle. This is what we did when we struggled in this area. This is what we found worked for us. Yeah, we want we want these kinds of things to be business standard, really. And exactly. Yeah. But, but, but the starting point of all of that is influence. Look at me. I'm this massive um, multinational billion dollar business you could you know and I want to do this so surely you want to do it too oh yes I do because I want to be seen in the same light as that business yeah sure you know the, the, those are the businesses that are kind of more like morally leading the way for everyone else and saying you know what this is this isn't just something that uh, that some people should do this is something that everyone should do and it matters yeah. it matters yeah to- uh, and it should matter to to everyone. Like we're more likely to value doing business with people who share these values as well. We know that we generally like to spend time with in, in our personal lives with people who have similar values to us, rather yeah. than you know, very different values. It's very similar in the business world as well. We want to do business with people who share our values ideally as well, and we don't want to do business with people who don't. So, uh, so yeah, really important stuff, and and the influence stuff definitely very 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 powerful there what would be um based on based on what you said it might just be recapping really but what would be your vision for where you would like things to get and how far away do you think probably we are from that or maybe just in the uk at least well i think first of all i'll answer the second part i don't think we're going to get to fully inclusive workplaces or fully inclusive societies in our lifetime and obviously you're a lot younger than I am so in my lifetime (laughs) I think it will be like still hundreds and hundreds of years away Um, but what I what I would like to get to um, specifically well no actually not specifically aimed just at business but specifically aimed at society as a whole which obviously encompasses business is a place where everybody no matter what your beliefs, what your values, obviously if you're not a murderer, um, what your beliefs, what your values, what your um, lifestyle and your lifestyle choices and everything else that encompasses all of those protective characteristics and all of those underprivileged characteristics um, is, uh, that people feel as though they can be who they are um, with the support there um, and do what they want to do successfully without having to plan five steps ahead about okay what am I going how am I going to present myself to this person what am I going to do to get on this bus um how am I going to explain this there should be no need for that it should be it should be done so you should be able to walk in a restaurant I should be able to as a wheelchair user go into a restaurant and say 
Um, I would like to sit at this table and not have to worry about somebody saying, oh, sorry, our lift is broken, or we don't have a lift at the second floor. I can just go where I want to go, or I don't have to call a hotel in advance to say, would well, you have any accessible rooms available? Because the rooms are accessible. Mm-hmm. Or nine times out of 10, the rooms are going to be accessible and they're going to have the things I need. And if they're not there, they can be sourced by the time I get there. Nice. Um, or I'd love to come and present at your session is it accessible? Oh no, well then I can't. Um, the, luckily that hasn't happened often where, where I couldn't take an opportunity because of the accessibility in my speaking career, but it's happened a couple of times where I've had some really good opportunities presented, but I couldn't do it because it hasn't been accessible to me. And obviously I'm talking specifically about disability, but this covers every characteristic. Um, no characteristic should have to um, think of about how people are going to accept them into whatever community that is that they would like to be a part of. It should be given that people are going to be accepted and celebrated for who they are. Hopefully, but you know how it is. People don't like people who are too different to them. And uh, we, exactly. we, tend to, we tend to sort for differences more than similarities. And uh, I think that uh, one of the things that I, I hope I I don't know, I have to work on myself sometimes, but it's just always aiming to at least be kind in all of your interactions. I think if you're always going to be kind and have respect for people, um, then you're not going to go too far wrong. You might not get get it right every time. You might not be perfect on that, but if you, if you actually check in with people, be kind to them, ask the questions, be supportive and respectful for people, then people will usually tell you um, how how you can help, how you, um, and people will usually appreciate that as well. We could all do with uh, that bit more kindness to each other in in all of our interactions. And sometimes it's just that, uh, those sort of more automated responses that we uh, have uh, more naturally done in our past that just like, all we need to do is take a take a moment to think before we uh, before we respond before we act. But uh, I think you've already given some really good. Uh, some can good... I can I just answer yeah. what you said because I completely agree with you and I think that they can. But you said kindness, but I would add on to that compassion. And I think if we can be compassionate, and as you say, take time to listen and ask the questions, um, it's so important because, as you say, first of all, it supports people to understand that you want to know the answer. As long as the person asking the question is then waiting for the answer, if they're not looking somewhere else or changing their body language, but they're actually waiting for the answer. Um, and compassion because when we assert compassion it's easier to think okay what can I do about the situation Um, because you're actually taking time to think about what it's like for the other person and I think a lot of things to do with disability inclusion especially and any other inclusion actually just takes a bit of compassion and a bit of understanding because the minute you start to think about what it might be like for somebody else, the minute you start to think, okay, what can I do differently to make it better? Um, and also ask it after asking that question, you know, how can I help? What support would you like? What could have been improved? Be, be prepared to do something about it, to action that feedback that you were given. So, so it's not just about filing it in your brain or filing it in a piece of paper and putting it away in a drawer. It's actually, this is really helpful. What can we do 
to make this an actionable um, change in our business, organization, life, whatever it is. Um, Listening to people and actually encouraging them. Um, So telling them that you would like to know their feedback. Um, because not everybody is going to tell you. I will tell you, you know, if, if somebody asks me to fill in a feedback form, I will tell them or else don't give me the feedback form. But not everybody's going to do that because they're worried about other people's feelings. So making sure as the person asking the question that you've set the premise for the person to understand that you want to hear the honest, um, critical truth obviously in a, in a polite, appropriate way, um, then it's going to give them more confidence to say, oh, actually, this was really good, but I think this could have been improved and this is a way you could do it. Not everybody's going to have a solution to give you, but actually saying what's not right, and it could be a small thing that might be immaterial to the person asking, but could make an entire difference to that person telling you. Um, And then showing them what you're doing about it. Um, Because so many people are disenfranchised by the fact that they give their feedback and then nothing's done and it hammers over and over again. And it's actually um, written in business theory that um, in order to to have positive data, you don't you don't respond to people's complaints and then you can put your positive outcome because it's all gone away. But actually what it does is it disenfranchises the person. So they won't do it next time. So even if you can't continue that, continue what they've suggested because you don't have the resources, you can tell them why and you can thank them for their time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was going to ask whether uh, what you would recommend for us to be able to do on an individual level that would make a difference here. And I think you just answered it beautifully. So, so thank you yeah. for that. Um, people may want to get a bit more insight into what they might be able to do especially if they're business owners or or involved in corporations that would like to improve their accessibility for people how could they find out more about you and what you do so they could go on my website which is celebratingdisability.co.uk um and making i've got lots of resources on there so in this summer so may and june i hosted about eight webinars Um, It was exhausting. Um, But um, all those recordings of the webinars are on the website, so they can have a look at them. I have lots of articles that they can look at. Um, They can connect with me through LinkedIn, which is my name, Essie Hardy. Um, And they can contact me. So through the website, they can send me an email, book a time to chat with me, um, just an informal exploration chat about, you know, um, any questions they may have. Um, and they can join my mailing list as well, where I send out inclusion bites. I call them disability inclusion bites that go out once a week um, to help people with their disability inclusion strategy um, in their organisation. And it helps them define the difference between things like um, diversity and inclusion and accessibility and inclusion. Well, I've certainly learned some uh, insightful things from you today, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, Are there any additional books or resources that you might recommend that either relate to this or just like a good book recommendation that you like to give out to people? So um, a colleague of mine, Roland Chester, has written a book called Ripples from the Edge of Life. Um, And it's his experience of um, having HIV and AIDS. 
um, and it aims defining illness. So the book is about his experience, but also 13 other people's experience of having HIV and an AIDS defining illness. Um, I think it's brilliant. It's it's insightful, it's powerful. I don't use the word um, inspirational for lots of reasons that we don't have time to go into, but it's insightful, it's powerful. It's, it's um, uh, kind of heartwarming and heartbreaking. Um, I, I very much recommend it. You can find it on amazon.co.uk. Great. I'll put a link to that and the other things in the show notes as well. As we wrap things up for today, uh, what would the, be the thought that you would most like to leave people with at the end of our episode together? I think I think it's what we talked about before: compassion and empowerment. I think that it doesn't matter what position people are in, um, whether they're in a powerful position within an organisation or they're a person who doesn't have a job at the moment, um, listening to what other people are saying, um, going out of their way to learn other people's experiences um, to to kind of put into their own, um, asking people if they would like support, um, but understanding that not everybody wants support and mainly what we're struggling but they're managing fine another thing that I always say is you know I look like I'm struggling because my hands are all over here and I pull a face I have a concentration face which is a bit terrible um but actually I'm managing fine and actually being interrupted is quite annoying um but always offering that support but be willing to hear what the answer is um and asking people what could be done better if they work within a position to change things Excellent. Well, Essie, it's been a real pleasure speaking today. Thank you to my guest, Essie Hardy. We're back with more great guests coming up soon on the show as well as some individual episodes. So come and check those out in the future. Thank you, Essie. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to like and subscribe if you haven't already and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Why not get yourself a copy of my new ebook, The Five Key Beliefs of Bulletproof Business Speakers, available from presentinfluence.com. If you're able to join us next week, we're doing something a bit different at 11 a.m. European time and 10 a.m. UK time on the 4th of December, Friday the 4th of December. I will be having a chat with Jeremy Nicholas, who is a great presenter, very experienced presenter. He's certainly had lots of TV experience after dinner speaking and more besides, a great event speaker and a good humorist as well. In fact, he teaches, he runs a course in humor and presentation skills. So I am really looking forward to having that conversation with him hope you can join us live if not the episode will be going out the same day later that day so it's going to be my freshest episode with a quick turnaround if you can join us live follow me on linkedin john abel you'll find me there on linkedin connect with me and you will be able to tune in live 10 a.m next friday the 4th of december or 11 a.m european time with jeremy nicholas live on linkedin and say episode coming out the same day so look out for that see you next time